0: Well, as uh, Benjamin said, my name is Brian Morawski. I'm an associate professor at Cairn University, where I teach Bible and doctrine courses. Uh, in, case you, in case you missed it, two weeks ago, Pastor Austin introduced me and mentioned that I'll be preaching here about once a month for the next few months to help with some of the preaching load. Uh, I was encouraged this morning to reiterate to you, though, that I am not your new pastor, um, nobody voted on this, right? So I'm not taking a salary from the church or anything like that. I, I'm a lowly preacher, a humble servant of the text, I'm really just delighted to be able to serve you in this way in the next few months uh, as you, as a church, have been, have been ministering to, to myself and my family. Uh, before starting full-time at, at Cairn University, I was a pastor for 15 years, first in New Jersey and then later on in Michigan and people often asked me as we moved back to this area just recently what did you like about michigan and i would give them this long blank stare that would kind of make them uncomfortable <laughs> uh, th- there were some unique things about michigan there were some things that we weren't so crazy about we never found a good slice of pizza while we were there uh, the roads were terrible like dirt roads they still have. What year is this where you still have dirt roads that you can turn down anywhere you go? And they had this weird thing where like they would hold up their hand. If you asked where you're from in Michigan, you ever, I don't know if you know Michigan, they have the Michigan mitten and they'd tell you, well we're from right here and we used to live up here and we're now down here and or they'd turn it this way if they're from the UP and which actually wasn't too bad. Uh, because before that, we were from New Jersey. And when someone wanted to know where you live in New Jersey, we'd use the armpit, right? I mean, exit, <laughs> exit 68. It's so all that to say, I'm really happy to be living in Pennsylvania now. Um, one, of the, one of the good, unique things, this is where all this is going. I mean, I've got a point here, right? One of the, one of the good, unique things about Michigan, though, um, not just many great friends that we've made there, uh, but we discovered this on our way out of the state. My oldest son and I, we like to hunt for and collect uh, fossils and gemstones. And one of our church members found this out and gave us what is called a Petoskey stone. I don't know if you know what this is. Uh, Petoskey stones are actually fossilized coral. You find them primarily on the shore of certain lakes in Michigan. Now, the stones are nothing to look at at first. There's a picture of one of them. Uh, This is the one that my friend gave me. Uh, Just kind of a weird-looking rock, right? Well, after hours of sanding with different grits of sandpaper, we were able to polish the stone, and it starts to look a little like this. Now, we did this one by hand. If you use the right tools, they turn out even nicer than this, but it's nice and smooth and really good-looking. But if you're doing this by hand, it takes hours of rubbing the stone with rough, abrasive sandpaper in order to bring out the beauty in that rock. Now, what does a Petoskey stone have to do with Ezra chapter 4 and the people of God? I'm not telling you yet. You're going to have to wait to the end of the sermon where we're going to come back to this and hopefully all of it will click together. So keep it in mind, but keep it in the back of your mind. We've been studying the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first three chapters of Ezra have been great. There there is like a spiritual high for the Israelites. God's people come back after 70 years of exile. They get off their lazy boy recliners and show their faithfulness by returning to this demolished, ruined land of Jerusalem. They prioritize worship. They immediately build an altar. They have a worship service. They start rebuilding the temple. It is one of the best beginnings to any book of scripture. Three chapters into Ezra and Nehemiah, we have prophecy fulfilled, a faithful return, a worship service, other wonderful things packed into this couple chapters here. Now think of that in contrast to other biblical books. Three chapters into Genesis, what do we have? Adam and Eve sin and ruin it for all of us. The three chapters into Exodus, murdered babies, Moses, the hero of the book, murders an Egyptian and flees. Three chapters into Judges, the Israelites have already been enslaved three different times to foreign enemies. So when we get three chapters into Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have only good things from the people of God, this is great. What could possibly go wrong? Famous last words, right? Do you remember where we left off last week? The altar has been built, the temple foundation was laid, and at the end of Ezra 3, we're going to pick it up at the end of Ezra 3, just to refresh our memories where we're at. Look at, starting in verse 10, look to the end of this chapter. Ezra three ten. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his love and kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the, Lord of, the house, of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So the people sing, and they celebrate the start of this new temple. But the older people, the ones who have seen the old temple, and it's all of its glory, Solomon's temple, they cry and there's so much weeping and crying mixed in with all the people, the text says that the sound was heard far away. Heard by whom? That's kind of ominous, isn't it? Who is listening in? It's kind of like when you get to the end of a Marvel superhero movie. The bad guy has been defeated, all the plot threads are wrapped up, the good guys have won, you think it's all over, and then after the credits roll, You get that post credit scene with this new threat looming in the background. Who is listening in? Well, we don't have to read very far to find out. This is where we pick it up in Ezra chapter 4. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Well, that's a little rude, isn't it? Is it or not? What is going on here? As the Israelites begin to rebuild their temple, they are approached by this other group of people. This group of people says that they've been here since Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought them into Israel many years ago before this story took place. He was a king that ruled about 150 years before this story happened right here. So 150 years before Ezra 4, a group of foreigners were brought into Israel, transplanted as part of Assyria's effort to infiltrate and assimilate their people in, and their customs into Israel and their newly conquered land. And then they remain there for 150 years, settling and dwelling and mixing in with the people of Israel. And what do these people say? They come in to Israel, they knock on the door, and they say, we want to help. We also seek your God. We've been living here for a century and a half, 150 years. We want to help you build your temple. We've been sacrificing to God all along that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want help? Many hands make light work. The more, the merrier. We've got all sorts of proverbs about that sort of thing. I mean, if you were building an extension on your house and a bunch of Americans came and knocked on your door and said, hey, we've been here a long time. We've been living right down the street for, you know, however long and and we noticed you were building something. We live right down the street. Can we help out, please? What would you say? Take my hammer, (laughs) right? You'd, You'd welcome them in. So why does Zerubbabel and Jeshua and all the other leaders say, no, we're going to do it ourselves. We don't want you. Zerubbabel, you might remember, is the governor of Judah. Jeshua was the high priest of Israel. These were two great leaders in Israel. And they lead Israel to give these Assyrian Israelites the cold shoulder. Well, why? Notice the key word in verse 1. Look again at verse 1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, do you hear that? The narrator, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah, writing from the divine perspective, immediately tells us what we should think of these people. They are enemies. Other translations might say adversaries. These people are not friendly neighbors. They're not just offering to help out of the goodness of their heart. Their motives are rotten. They are not here for good reasons. So Ezra chapters 1 to 3 shows Israel at the peak. They were doing great. There was much to celebrate. Ezra 4 then asks the question, how will the people of God handle opposition? What will they do when their perfect faithful return is threatened? The prologue is over. It was easy to follow God in easy times. Can the returnees follow God now in a more challenging environment? You know, one of the things I learned as a pastor is that there will always be opposition in ministry. You cannot get away from it. It doesn't matter how great of a pastor you are doesn't matter how well you teach the Bible, doesn't matter how big or small your ministry, the one thing that you can always count on, there will be opposition in ministry. Not just pastoral ministry, but any kind of spiritual ministry in the church. In fact, strangely enough, sometimes the more faithful you are in ministry, the more opposition that you encounter. The opposition is directly proportional to how faithful you are at times. You know why? Why? Because the enemies of God hate successful ministry. The enemy does not look favorably upon times of joy and faithfulness. Many times the most intense and effective opposition arises after the greatest victories and spiritual successes. For those of you men who are going on the men's retreat at the end of the month, the devil is going to do all he can do to keep you from going on that retreat. And if and when you go... Satan is going to do everything he can to get you to fall spiritually after the retreat. I remember as a teenager, I used to go on a lot of youth retreats. It was like a second job to me. I I would go to my youth group retreat, and then I'd go to my best friend's youth group retreat, and then I'd go to another one. I met my wife at, at youth group, another person's youth group. Like, it works, right? It's great. I was a youth group hopper. And, and my parents were totally okay with it because they figured and they reasoned like better to be a youth group hopper than to play soccer. So it was all good. Now, it worked like clockwork. I'd go to these retreats and I'd come back on this spiritual high, right? I don't know how else to talk about it. Like it was, it was this moment of elation. It was, everything was holy and focused on God. I'm, I'm sold out for Jesus, committing everything to him. And inevitably, you can almost plan on it, I'd get home and something would happen to shock me out of that. I remember one time I got home all hyped up for Jesus. And my parents, that same night, dropped this bomb on me. We're adopting a kid. Well, that ruined my life that day, didn't it? (laughs) I remember one time I got home all ready to share Jesus with my friends, ready to share Jesus at school. And that same day I got to school, I got violently sick. It's really tough to share Jesus when you're throwing up every five seconds. All kinds of oppositions and trials try to slow us down from God's work, and the the enemy is angriest when we are godliest. And the scary thing is, the enemies of God are experts at blending in to Christianity. You see how they do it here in Ezra 4. They seem like great people, don't they? I look back at my ministry. Some of the greatest antagonists and opponents of me and my ministry were oftentimes those who sat in some of the highest leadership positions in the church. They were the deacons, the trustees, the Sunday school teachers, the chairman of the ministries at times. And oftentimes they came with the same kind of language that we hear from the enemies of God in Ezra 4. They wanted you to know how long they've been here at church. They believe their tenure earned them power and influence they wanted you to know that they're here to help. We're your biggest proponents, pastor. The enemies of God are experts at appearing to be Christians. And I don't say this to alarm you. I know we just voted in a few new elders two weeks ago, right? Like, I'm not trying to say that, that Don Cheney is Judas in disguise or that we should be suspicious of, like, like your new elders, Brant and Rick. I mean, Rick, I, you know, there's other reasons we should question him, but I, I've... <laughs> I've been here long enough to know I can tease him a little bit, right? I I love these men. I pray for them. and I hope you do too. What we see here, what what I'm saying here is what we see here is nothing new. It's been going on since the time of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the time of Jesus and Paul, the time of Brian and Pastor Austin, and for as long as Jesus shall tarry, it is nothing new. Jesus had the Pharisees. They were experts at religion. They were people who looked great on the outside. They they really were good-looking on the outside as far as their religion. But they were rotten inwardly. Jesus had his Pharisees. Zerubbabel had his people of the land. But thankfully, Zerubbabel and the leaders sniff out this threat before it gets much worse. And they reject this seemingly kind offer to help rebuild the temple. You want to know one of the fastest ways to know somebody's character? Fastest ways to discern someone's character. Tell them no. Tell them no and see what happens if they don't get their way. Are they humble? Are they respectful? Or do they act like this? Look at Ezra 4, starting in verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithradath, Tabeel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic, now, there's a lot going on here, so let me just try to unpack some of this so we understand it. After the people of the land are rejected from helping out with the temple, what do they do? Do they act humble? Are they respectful? Their true colors show. When they don't get their way, they begin a campaign against the godly leaders. The text says they try to discourage the people of Judah. The original language of Hebrew literally reads here, they weakened the hands of the people of Judah you ever experienced that? Maybe it's a, a boss or a manager at work, he starts getting on your case, he wants you to be more productive, but he says some discouraging things and what ends up happening is, instead of being more productive, your hands feel like they're weaker. You just feel like you're drained of energy to do what you're supposed to do. You're less productive. Discouragement tends to dishearten us. It weakens our hands for ministry. For the Jews, it frightened them from building. It stopped them from doing what God wanted them to do, what they knew was right. But the scare tactics didn't even stop with discouragement. The people of the land also hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel. They were deceptive in their means to infiltrate their ranks, slow down their progress. These were like the knuckleheads at the annual meeting who keeps bogging everything down with distracting questions about minutia and finding points of order to quarrel with, all in the name of God, of course. All in the name of I just want to help. (laughs) By the way, I didn't stay that long in your annual meeting, so that's not a comment about anyone here. Um, But I was at the annual meeting a couple weeks ago, and I was refreshed. I came home from that. My wife, Janice, asked me how did it go, and I told her how refreshing it was to get together with people who were excited to be around each other, eating food, singing, laughing, eating food, celebrating the, world, Lord, the Lord's work, eating food, right? I mean, it was great. It was refreshing. I'm not, I'm not joking you when I, when I tell you this, but the last annual meeting I was at, the last church meeting I was at, the pastors were escorted out the side door by security. It was a nice change of pace to be here at Riverstone. <laughs> but I tell you this because I know the enemies of God are excellent at discouragement. They're experts at it. Each of those action words in verses 4 and 5 that we read there, they're called durative participles. They show continual action. It's not just a one-time thing. They discouraged the people. They frightened them. They hired counselors against them. All continual action over a long period of time. You know how disheartening a single word of discouragement can be to you. Imagine having that over and over and over again. These enemies, they resorted to harassment, verse four, political bribery, verse five, manipulative exaggeration and slander, verses six and seven. These were the people that were all over ancient Facebook, smearing nasty lies, hateful speech about the leaders of Israel. They wrote harassing emails and each a mile long, designed to destroy the reputation of their leaders. They didn't mind spending their resources to rally some allies in order to stop God's people from doing work, all because they were not in control. And you want to know the worst of it? It didn't just happen in one generation. It wasn't just a one-time event. Look at the names of the kings that are listed here. Verse 5, the enemies harassed them all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 6, they wrote an accusation against God's people to Ahasuerus. Verse 7, they wrote another letter to King Artaxerxes. Now, I'm going to wager a guess that most of you didn't wake up and study your chart of Persian kings when you had your morning cup of coffee this morning. So take a look at the screen behind me. Let's put these words into context. The top of this shows the major events in Ezra and Nehemiah. The bottom of this chart shows the Persian kings who ruled during those events. Ezra 4 mentions four Persian kings. Cyrus, he was the king who sent the Israelites back from exile, 539 B.C. Darius, there is a king between Cyrus and Darius, but he doesn't factor much into this story, so we kind of ignore him. But Darius reigned during much of the time of Zerubbabel and all of them that we're reading about today. Ahasuerus, this is the Persian king during Esther's time, also known as King Xerxes. Then there was Artaxerxes. He's the king later on in the book during Ezra and Nehemiah's time. So we've got four kings here spread over the course of about a hundred years. And during each one of those kings, the Israelites experienced persecution, persecution, persecution. In fact, most of the rest of the chapter that we're going to read today demonstrates the continual opposition to God's work by means of a fast forward in time. Verse 7 tells us that during the reign of Artaxerxes, this trio of adversaries and all their cronies wrote this letter to the Persian king. And at this point in the text, the, the original language actually switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. Aramaic is like a sister language to Hebrew. If you think of like the relationship between English and Latin, Aramaic became the official language uh, of many of the people at that time during the exile. So the rest of chapter 4, all of chapter 5, some of chapter 6, switches to Aramaic as the narrator starts to incorporate these original documents to prove his point that this opposition was continual and real. So let's read this letter. This is a letter sent by the enemies of God's people to the Persian king. Pick it up in verse 8. Rehum, the commander... And Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and their lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapper, uh, Osnapper is probably Ashurbanipal, it's a famous Assyrian king, "'which the great and honorable Osnapper deported and settled in the city of Samaria "'and in the rest of the region beyond the river. "'Now this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. "'To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region behind the river, "'and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you "'have come to us at Jerusalem. "'They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city "'and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations.' Now, let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. It will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore, we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city, and damaging the kings and provinces, and they have incited revolt within it in the past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. The enemies of God are quite resourceful, aren't they? You see what they do here? They gather all the manpower that they can, all the social influencers of their day they rally together past and present leaders people who they think will hold clout in the establishment as many names as they can all the current and former board members as many as they can to write a nasty slanderous letter against the leaders of Israel they gather up as many signatures as they're able and they write this letter and they really slather on the flowery language here don't they They really butter up this king to the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapper deported. Now, I've read the original Aramaic, and that reads like this. I I think if I've got my pronunciation correct, right? They're kissing up here. But what does the letter actually say? I mean, this is a hit piece against the Israelites. They attack the character of the faithful Israelites. The rebellious and evil city, they say. The city is rebellious and damaging the kings and provinces. They have incited revolt in the past days. They dig into the past and they try to find some dirt on the Israelites. They bring up the past and they think that's going to convince everyone that these people are evil. They use fear tactics to discourage progress. We call this fear mongering. If the leaders have their way, it'll change everything. They'll take control. They'll have all the power. They're going to dishonor those who we honor in our past. Next thing you know, they're not going to pay their taxes. The king is going to lose control. It's going to be mayhem. That's effective, isn't it? Imagine powerful people doing this against you or against your pastors or your leaders. It is difficult to stop this kind of slanderous persecution. It was difficult for the Jews. In fact, look at verses 17 to 23. Here's the king's response back. It says, Then the king sent an answer to Rahum the commander and to Shimshai the scribe and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against kings in the past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. There is just enough half-truths in that letter to get the king worried. He starts looking into the past, and he sees, hey, this city has given foreign kings problems before. Now notice that that's a mark of the king's godliness in Israel. All that they can find is evidence of good things, and yet they're able to take those things and twist them against the Jewish people. Say, well, the Jews haven't always been model citizens. And the king goes, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe I do need to stop the rebuilding of their walls. So Artaxerxes puts a stop to it. He orders them to pay tribute and to cease their activity. The enemies win. And armed guards are sent to the Jews and stop them from their work. Now, we've got to keep in mind all of this, this whole letter, this whole thing with King Artaxerxes, all of this is a flash forward in time. 75 years after the time of Zerubbabel started this chapter. In fact, the last verse, verse 24, look at how this takes us back to where this chapter began. Verse 24 says, Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's like a bookend with verse 5 that talks about them stopping the days of Darius, king of Persia. So verses 6 to 23 are like a giant parenthesis in this chapter. How many of you remember that TV show Lost many years ago? I love it or hate it, it captured the attention of the American spirit for a couple years. And the gimmick of this show was that in each episode, you're following a main, a main character and you're flashing back to scenes from their previous part of their lives off the island, their time before they were stranded. And those flashbacks helped interpret and complement what was happening on the island at that time, right? Then, spoiler alert, I mean, it's been 15 years, so if you haven't seen it by now, probably won't. But at the end of season three, you have this whole episode during the season finale where you're following the main character, and it's flashing back to where he's off the island, only to find out at the very end of the episode that what you've been reading or what you've been watching are not actually flashbacks, but flash-forwards in time. Ezra 4 is that flash-forward moment. Verses 1 to 5, the enemies of God anger God's people during the time of Zerubbabel. It's so bad the Jews stop their work on the temple. Verses 6 to 23, that parentheses, it sees the enemies of God doing the same thing during the time of Darius, during the time of Xerxes, during the time of Artaxerxes. For 75 years, they're doing the same thing. And then verse 24 takes us back again to the time of Zerubbabel. Why this big flash forward? Why does the narrator insert something that doesn't happen yet in this time right here? This is a way of saying the opposition against God's people is nothing new and it's not going away anytime soon. The enemy is persistent. We must be too. What we're reading here is nothing new, it didn't stop at Artaxerxes either. When you look backwards in Scripture, Moses had his Korah, David had his Saul, Isaac had Manasseh, uh, Isaiah had Manasseh, Jeremiah had Pashur, Elijah had Ahab and Jezebel, Jesus had the Pharisees, and if you do things right, church, you may be blessed enough to suffer persecution one day too. And I say it like that because the Apostle Paul says in first, or 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted the enemies of God hate the work of God. They hate it when you have joy. They can't stand the sound of celebration and worship. When attendance and offering are up, they'll let you know why your numbers aren't really correct. When the new building needs to be built because the service is just overflowing with people, they're going to gum up all that they can in the process. When you're sharing your faith at work, these are the people that go and talk to your boss and say how it's taking you away from your productivity. When you're living righteously, they'll dig up some dirt in your past to prove to others you're not as good as you say you are. But you know what this text teaches us? We cannot be short-sighted when facing that kind of opposition. The way the narrator tells this story with the flash forward in time, it helps readers to trust that God is a God outside of time, and none of this surprises him it helps readers to know that this kind of attacks or these kinds of attacks are nothing new and they are not going away anytime soon the bible has a lot to say about facing difficulties like persecution persecution is just one kind of obstacle that will be put in your path and a difficulty that's going to slow you down in your progress for god since this text uses that future perspective of the israelites Let me just summarize here three different takeaways related to dealing with difficulties from a proper perspective, not just persecution, but all kinds of life difficulties. Number one, Christians ought to view difficulties from a spiritual perspective. We already saw from 2 Timothy 3 that persecution often results from a godly lifestyle, When you're going through trials, whether they be trials of persecution or health issues or financial issues or relationship difficulties, whatever they may be, realize that it's not always because you're doing something wrong in your life that you're going through this. Sometimes you go through that trial exactly because you've been doing something right. The book of James starts off by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice how James takes a spiritual perspective on trials. He assumes that believers will go through difficult times. Count it all joy, my brothers, not if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. God allows us to suffer because it tests our faith and ultimately produces a steadfastness and maturity that we could not have otherwise. Trials produce maturity in Christians in a way that other spiritual disciplines cannot reproduce themselves. If you can get the same kind of maturity through reading your Bible that you can get through going through a trial, God would not need to put us through that trial. Now, reading your Bible is good. I'm not saying don't do that. But what I'm saying is God puts us or allows us to go through these trials for a reason. And that's to mature us. I was a swimmer in high school. I got to tell you, there is nothing fun about swim practice. I don't know if any of you have ever swam competitively before, but two straight hours of punishment every single day of the week, every muscle in your body working, that is not fun. If there was a pill that I could take, If there was a supplement that I could take that would produce the endurance and the strength and the skill that my body needed to succeed, I would gladly have paid a lot of money for all those things. But the only way to get the endurance and the strength and the skill that I needed to be a successful swimmer was through the suffering of swim practice. Trials are the swim practice of the Christian faith. God loves us enough to allow us to suffer. Israel was doing something right, and that led to persecution. So Christians, let us view our difficulties through a spiritual perspective. Secondly, Christians view difficulties through an eternal perspective. The time jump in Ezra 4 helps us to see this perspective. Persecution was nothing new to these believers, and it wasn't going away. It spanned the time of Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes and Artaxerxes. It would continue in the New Testament times and beyond that. But you know what the Apostle Paul says about suffering? Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How cool is that? Not worth comparing. It wouldn't even do to offer an analogy, he says. What we suffer today is absolutely nothing in comparison to what is to come one day. Oftentimes, we look at the difficulties in our lives through very temporary lenses. We look at difficulties very short-sightedly. We think about how it's ruining our lives now. Think about my bank account now. Think about my problems that I've got today. Well, at the risk of sounding too frank, who cares about now? We should be living our lives in view of eternity. I'm not saying that now doesn't matter. I mean, we do care about now. It matters a lot. But we view the circumstances of now through the lens of what is to come. If we recognize that God is using this to refine us, to grow us spiritually, to help us ultimately become more effective in sharing the gospel and making disciples, perhaps we would be more welcoming to the difficulties that God allows in our lives. And again, I I don't mean to to sound shallow or inconsiderate of what you're going through. Many of you have suffered greatly. Many of you are suffering greatly in many ways. But I'm hoping and praying that it's helpful to keep in mind that your trials are not forever. And God allows them because he wants to mature you through them. What God has in store for you is not even worth comparing to the pain that you suffer today. So Christians should view trials from a spiritual perspective. They should view difficulties from an eternal perspective. And third, Christians view difficulties from an evangelistic perspective. You might remember before the book of Ezra, We were working through the book of Philippians at Riverstone. (laughs) Remember in the first chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says this, chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul was being persecuted. He was sitting in prison as he's writing these words, and yet what he's saying is that imprisonment served to further the advance of the cause of the gospel. He says that he's witnessing to more people because of the trials that God has given him. Difficult times often open doors for Christians to be bolder to have more opportunity to share their faith with others. It gives us opportunities to minister to people who are going through similar trials in their lives. It emboldens other believers to share your faith more, to see what you've gone through, to see how God has sustained you through it and matured you through it, and now they're comfortable going through it themselves. One of the great privileges I had as a pastor was being bedside with people who were slipping away into eternity. Never thought about this as a privilege before, but I had the wonderful privilege of comforting the dying. And strangely enough, the faith of many dying people, oftentimes I found myself being comforted by them. I saw the way that they suffered. I saw the way that they went through it. And I left that hospital or that hospice or that bedroom with more hope than when I went in, giving me greater confidence. One day the Lord's going to take me home. And I'll think back upon those saints and how they face death themselves. And hopefully, Lord willing, face death more confidently myself. The Lord can use your trials for evangelistic or discipleship purposes. But if we are so swallowed up in our own misery, that's going to stifle God's ability to use you. So we view trials through a spiritual perspective, through an eternal perspective, through an evangelistic perspective. Let me summarize all of that with one Big idea. God uses persecution to polish His people. God uses persecution to polish His people. You remember the Petoskey stone? It is only through the process of sanding, of submitting the stone to rough affliction from the sandpaper, that we can go from a rough-looking rock. This is what it normally looks like. I didn't do the back a rough-looking rock, to a beautiful fossil. It's only through polish that God, his intended beauty within the stone, can rise to the surface. God polishes his people, but it's rough. It's not pleasant. It takes a long time. But it's only through the polish of persecution and trials and difficulties that God will perfect you to be the beautiful son or daughter that he intends for you to be. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know all of you that well yet. I don't know what trials you're suffering. I don't know what difficulties you're facing today or tomorrow. But I pray that you suffer well. I pray that you suffer with a spiritual perspective, with an eternal perspective, with an evangelistic perspective. Allow God's polish to beautify you spiritually. Let me pray in that regard. Father, I ask that you would polish this people. From what I understand, that they have been through some times together. And Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that you would mature them. That you would help them to have perseverance, steadfastness. And let that have its perfect result, that they might be mature before you. Let the beauty of this church shine through the difficulties they faced strengthen them in times of persecution to come. May they be godly enough to suffer through persecution. And Lord, may you be glorified in the way that they encounter it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.